The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. So my one-year-old, Asher, is a total mama's boy right now. Like he, uh, I think that he thinks Holly belongs to him. So like if, if my wife, if Holly is holding him and I come up to hug her or to give her a kiss on the cheek or anything like that, he literally starts crying and physically tries to push me away. It's not that he doesn't like me. He does. He's totally fine just he and I hanging out. He just doesn't like anything that hints at my identity as Holly's husband. Like I'm pretty sure that if he knew what this ring meant, he would try to bite it off my finger. Like... Whenever Asher is confronted with the reality that Holly and I are one, his heart full out rejects that, and he is ready to get physically violent about it. In John chapter 10, the Jewish people in Jerusalem, especially the religious leaders, they're being confronted with Jesus' identity. They're being confronted with the fact that Christ and the Father are one. That's what he says in verse 30. I and the Father are one. And they all out reject that reality and they are ready to get physically violent about it. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And so my question is, why do their hearts respond this way to the claims of Christ? And make it even a little bit more personal, do our hearts respond this way and as soon as i pose that question i fear that any of us in here that consider ourselves believers in jesus we immediately shut off anything that's about to follow this message is not for me it's a question about whether or not i believe that jesus is who he claimed to be and i believe that so i'm good so i can shut this off this is an evangelistic message just for non-believers but we need to be slow Christians, we, we need to be slow about answering this question. Does my heart respond in rejecting the claims of Christ? We need to be slow about it because I, I think that as believers, we're very quick to say, no, no, I don't reject the claims of Christ. And that's true. Maybe at least that's true about who he claimed he was. But is it true about the claims he makes on us because of who he is? Like, let's... Let's stretch out the implications of this text a little bit this this morning. If I am honest, 100% honest with you about me, even though I embrace Jesus for who he is, I don't always like what he says. I, I run up against, in this word, I run up against all sorts of claims that Christ makes that I want to reject. I don't like them. You ever read anything in the Bible that you don't like? It doesn't sit right. I want to to reject. I don't think I'm alone in this. I hear, I don't think I'm alone because all too often I hear people say things like this. They'll say, I don't really like this or that command of Jesus, but I'll obey it because it's in the Bible. That's not a heart that's embracing and rejoicing in the claims and the commands of Christ. Why do our hearts do this so often? Why do they push back? Why do they reject Jesus? I think 
that here at the end of John chapter 10, we get a little bit of light shed on what's happening in our, in our hearts when we encounter the claims of Christ. I think that the end of this chapter gives us a picture of not only what goes on in the heart that rejects the claims of Jesus, but I think it also gives us a picture of what goes on in the heart that rejoices in the claims of Jesus. And so this is what we, this is what we want to unpack this morning, is what we want to see, three simple things. We want to see the claims that Christ is making. We want to see the claims of Christ, and then we want to see the heart that rejects those claims, and we want to see the heart that rejoices in them. That's where we're going. We'll dive in together and just begin with number one, the claims of Christ. What is Christ claiming indeed in this, in this text? To get us started, I want us to actually go back, look back all the way up to verse 22. It's going to help us get the setting of what's going on right here. So in order to see the claims of Christ, back up to verse 22 through 24. Scripture says, At that time, the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple and around the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So the Jewish people in Jerusalem confront Jesus at the Feast of Dedication. I told you last week, the Hebrew word for dedication is Hanukkah. This is a celebration that still takes place in the winter. It's the Feast of Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication. It's called that because it celebrated the rededication of the temple during during the time period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's about a 400-year gap right there in your Bible. Right? In between that time period, the Jewish people got batted around like a ping-pong ball as to who was ruling over them. And at one point, there was a particular Greek ruler by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Epiphanes is not a name. It literally means God manifest. Antiochus thought a lot of himself. God in the flesh. And Antiochus did a lot of horrid things to the Jewish people and to the temple specifically. He did so much to the point that they wouldn't take it anymore and they rebelled against him. And they were successful. Kicked him out and they cleansed the temple and they rededicated it. And every year after that, there was a celebration, a feast to celebrate this rededication of the temple, celebrate the temple being set apart again, dedicated unto the Lord. It's in the midst of this setting that the Jews confront Jesus, asking, are you the one set apart unto the Lord, dedicated unto the Lord? Are you the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the set apart one, if so, tell us plainly. They say that because throughout John chapter 10, we've already seen that Jesus has been hinting at his identity a ton. He's been doing it through a metaphor. He's been saying, I'm like a shepherd and my people are like my sheep. I call them, they hear me, they follow me, I commission them and I keep them. These people, they're done with metaphors. They just want plain speak. Jesus, tell us, are you the Christ? They want an answer. We need his answer. We, we need his answer because everything that we have seen Jesus say to us in John chapter 10, we've seen a lot. He said that he is our shepherd. 
that he will die for us, that he will give us abundant life, that he will work through us to call all his sheep from every fold, from every nation unto himself, and by his sovereign power he will keep all his sheep. All of those claims rest on the answer to this question, are you the Christ? If he is, he can keep all of that. If he's not, we are lost. Like we stake our lives, our eternity, our purpose now and forever on Jesus' answer to this question. And he gives the answer in its fullest form in verse 30. Jesus tells them, I and the Father are one. That's not just a heady theological statement. Christ's ability to call you rests on that. His ability to keep you rests on that. That's exactly what he talked about right before he got to verse 30. He said, you're, you're in my hand. No one can snatch you out of my hand if you're my sheep. And you're in my father's hand and no one can snatch you out of my father's hand if you're my sheep. And the reason for all of that is because I and the father are one. You want to know how I've got the power to keep you? I and the father are one. This isn't just disconnected doctrine. Anytime we talk about deep theological issues like the fact that Jesus and God are one. We're not doing so just because this is fun stuff to think about. We're doing this because it has a massive practical impact on our daily life. Everything here is written for the glory of God and for your good. Wrestle it down no matter how obscure anything in this book feels. Wrestle it down until you find where God is anchoring your soul in his foundational truth. Jesus says, you want an answer? I and the Father are one. This is more than they bargained for. They just want to know, is he the Messiah? His answer is bigger than that. He responds not just by saying, I am the Christ, but I am the divine Christ. I'm, I'm God in the flesh. I know that's how they take his words. Because look at verse 33. They say, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. When they hear Jesus say, I and the Father are one, they hear a claim to be God. Jesus, you're just a man and you're making yourself God. Feel the irony in that. Jesus. Jesus is not a man making himself out to be God. He is God who has made himself man. He is God made manifest before them. They're, they're at a feast where they celebrate the defeat of a man who thought he was God manifest. And here's Jesus, God manifest as man. When they hear him say, I and the Father are one, they hear this claim to be divine. And they're right. They're right. That is what he's claiming. But they come to a wrong conclusion based on that claim. That they conclude from his words that Jesus is setting himself up beside God the Father as a competing God, as a, as a second God. And that's blasphemy. 
So is that what Jesus is doing here? No. His claim is not that he is a second God, but that he is God. Simultaneously, he does not claim to be God the Father. No, he's the Father's Son. He and the Father are one. Distinct persons, but one God. Has, has this not been the claim of this gospel since verse 1? John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. With God the Father, distinct from Him, and yet one, fully God. As Christians, we confess and we believe that our God is triune. One God. We're not polytheists. We don't worship a bunch of different gods. We don't worship three different gods. We worship one God who eternally exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and and Holy Spirit. We believe Jesus' claim in John chapter 10 and verse 30 that He and the Father are one. We believe that they're one in and through the Holy Spirit. We saw that back at the end of John chapter 3. This, this is the claim of Christ. Not that He's beside God, but that He is God. He is the Son of the Father. He is our sovereign divine shepherd. If that's true, feel the implications of that. Like if, if he is the sovereign shepherd of the sheep that he's claimed to be, then everything he's told us is true. It means when he calls, we come, and he will keep us forever as his. If the claim of Christ is true, it means that as our sovereign shepherd, he commissions us wherever he wills. Our lives are for him and for his purpose. Our lives are his to command. It means that there is not a single solitary second or a single solitary area of our lives over which Christ does not say, mine. Feel the weight of that. Not my possessions, not my money, not my house, not my relationships, not my thought life, not, not anything. All of it belongs to, to him. He's our shepherd king and he rules and reigns over our lives. If the claims of Christ are true, then we are not our own. That's easy enough to see in the metaphor itself. We are sheep and sheep belong to a shepherd and we follow wherever he leads does your heart reject that? When you hear that, is the impulse to push back, no, I'm a, my own person, make my own decisions, captain of my own soul, commander of my own fate, self-made person, self-sufficient, I'm mine. Like does, does your heart reject that? Or does it rejoice in the claims of Christ? Like, like, I wonder what's going on in your heart and my heart. Like right, right now when we hear Jesus make the claim, I and the Father are one. I'm God, your sovereign shepherd. You are mine. 
No matter what you're feeling, rejection or rejoicing, I want us to see. I think this text unfolds what goes on in both of those kinds of hearts. I want us, I want us to see inside the heart that rejects and the heart that rejoices. We've seen the claims of Christ. Let's go to number two. Let's look at the heart that rejects because that's precisely what the people listening to Jesus right here will do. Look at verses 31 to 33. The Jews picked up stones again. They already tried this once at the end of John chapter 8. They pick up stones again to stone him. If you're not familiar with that, that means they're going to throw rocks at him until he's dead. And Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. There's something very interesting and very revealing happening in this exchange between Jesus and the Jewish people. Like as they get ready to, to stone him to death, Jesus asks them a question that directs them towards his works, his miracles, his love, his life, his actions. And they readily, openly admit that for them, this isn't about his works. We don't care about your works. We're not considering that. We're, not thinking, we're ignoring all of that. This is just about your words. It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, for what you've claimed, for what you've said. They don't care about his works. They ignore those. Watch what Jesus does. Like over the next few verses, he's going to try to get them to quit being focused on his words for just a second. To get them to pause. Why? Because he wants them to take a moment to consider his works that they've seen. Why? Look at it with me. Let's see it together. Verses 34 to 36. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. Jesus quotes scripture to them. Very odd, even in its context. It's a very odd Old Testament verse. It's, it's Psalm 82 and verse 6. And if you go back to that psalm, God, big G, God the Father, it can get confusing because that word gets thrown around a lot right here. So God, big G, is speaking. And he's speaking to human judges, the judges of Israel. You can think of them as political military leaders. And the first words in this verse are this. I, that's God, big G, I said you are gods. So God, big G, calls these human judges gods, little g. And this is what Jesus quotes. Why? It's because the Jews are objecting to Jesus' words. He's claiming God is his father and that he is the son of 
God. And his listeners think this is blasphemy. In other words, they think this goes against what we know to be true from the Old Testament, from our scriptures. So he quotes them their scriptures, reminds them. The scriptures cannot be broken. You want to know Jesus' view of the Bible? This is it. The scriptures can't be broken. They can't be voided. They stand forever. They are authoritative down to their vocabulary usage. Like if that word God's is not used right here, Jesus' argument falls apart. Scripture cannot be, be broken. And Jesus says that in the unbreakable scripture, God himself is able in in some sense, to refer to human judges as God's little g. He tells us why he can do that. Jesus says it's because the word of God came to them. In other words, these judges served as God's representatives to the people. The point of all of this is Jesus is saying if the word God can be applied in some sense to mere human leaders, then how could it be inappropriate for it to be applied to the very one that God the Father consecrated and sent into the world? That's what he says in verse 36. How could it be inappropriate for me to be called the Son of God. Jesus is not trying to make an argument to prove his divinity here. He's trying to get them to pause for just a second. They're all tied up on the words that he's using, and he's saying, look, even according to the way the Old Testament uses the word, I cannot be charged with blasphemy. You're trying to charge me with blasphemy based upon the Scripture, but upon the Scripture, your account doesn't hold up. You need to consider something more. Jesus is trying to give them pause to make them think, hey, maybe we can't kill this guy solely based on his words. Because even our Old Testament has a little elasticity in the way that it uses these words. Maybe we need more evidence. Maybe we need to consider more than just what we think he is saying. What else does Jesus want them to consider? Verse 37 and 38. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, or in other words, even though you don't believe my words, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus says, pause for just a moment. You can't condemn me just because of my words. Think about my works. Consider, though, am I actually doing the works of God? Instead of going off of what you think you know, observe what's right in front of you. And the, the way that I'm living, does it actually demonstrate that I and the Father are one? Do my works back up my words? Do you, do you see, it's like Jesus is saying, do you see why I make the claims that I do? I want you to understand why I say the things that I say. Jesus says, even if you don't believe my words, look at my works and here's what will happen. You will come to know and come to understand that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, that I and the Father indeed are one. My works will lead you to the truth of my words. 
You'll understand why I say what I say. You'll see that my claims are true. Will they do this? Will they pause for a second and think through the implications of a man who changes water into wine or who makes the lame leap or the blind see? Will they think through the implications of what his works mean for his claims about who he is? Look at verse 39. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Short answer is nope. They won't pause. They won't think. They won't consider. Why? It's because his words apparently are enough for, him, for them. They hear his claims. His claims go against what they believe they know. And so their heart rejects the claims of Christ. For their heart is full of pride. They know. They don't need any more evidence. They can judge him simply based off what he has said and what they know their scripture says. It's pride. Pride is what is at work in the heart that rejects the claims of Christ. This is what is going on in the heart that pushes back against Jesus' claims. I know better than Jesus. I know better than the Word. The prideful heart is blind to the person of Christ. Do, Do you see the implications of this for us? Like when we hear the claims or when we hear the commands of Christ, do we reject them because they go against the grain of what we know, what we think we know? My siblings and I, we used to always get frustrated whenever we were in trouble and we had to talk to my dad. We didn't want to talk to my dad. We wanted to talk to my mom. Because dad only listened long enough until he thought he knew what was going on. Never listen to the why. Like, do we reject the claims of Christ because they go against the grain of what we think we know? When when you hear Christ's claim to be God in the flesh, his claim to be the one and only Savior, does your heart reject that? Because, you know, our, our modern sensibilities tell us that God couldn't become man, that miracles aren't really a thing, that there obviously couldn't be one and only one Savior, one way to God. That's awfully narrow-minded. We know all of this. Is that the reaction of of your heart? Or do you consider Christ's works, his miracles, his love, his life, do you consider the why behind his works? words so that you may come to know and understand. Jesus right now, Jesus is pleading with you. Like he's pleading with those in this text. He's pleading with you. Don't just reject his words because of what you think you know. Holly almost rejected me outright because of what she thought she knew. First time Holly and I met, she thought I was on a date with another girl who was my girlfriend So when I was flirting up a storm with her, she thought she knew I was a jerk. Don't 
Don't reject the words of Christ because of what you think you know. He pleads with these people as they are holding rocks in their hand, ready to kill him. He pleads with them to to believe. It's not too late for them. It's not too late for you. No matter how many times you've rejected Christ, no matter if you feel like you've thrown a few stones of your own at him, he's still calling you to consider the why behind his words, to think deeply about his works, how he caused the lame to leap, the blind to see, and the dead to live again. He's calling you to think deeply about how he died, sacrificed himself for sin, and rose on the third day to give eternal life to all who trust in him. Don't just pridefully reject his claims because of what you know. The prideful heart is blind to the person of Christ. It rejects him. And Christ is calling you, he's calling us to rejoice in him. What kind of heart does that? It's the third and And final thing, I want to see what what happens inside the heart that doesn't reject. The heart that rejects, it's pride at work. What happens inside the heart that doesn't reject, but that receives and rejoices in Jesus. Number three, final thing, the heart that rejoices. We see it in verses 40 to 42. Something I think that we could really just see as like an appendix to this chapter. It's just a geographical note. It's not. More than that's going on right here. Verses 40 to 42. Jesus went away again across the Jordan to the place where John, that's John the Baptist, who we haven't read about for a while. Heard about him a lot back in chapter 1, some in chapter 3. He goes across the Jordan to the place where John, who is dead at this point, John had been baptizing at first, and there Jesus remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. It's not just a geographical note, I think, that our author wants us to see something in contrast with the rejecting Jews in Jerusalem. Because here, across the Jordan, many are believing in Jesus, not rejecting, but rejoicing. Why? What's the difference? I think it's, it's explicit. We're told that Jesus goes to somewhere specific, to the place where John the Baptist ministry had been anchored. And we're told what John the Baptist's ministry was like. He did no sign. He just talked about Jesus. Everything he told us. John did no sign, but he talked about Christ, the one who would come. John did no sign because he was a sign. His whole ministry was a signpost pointing people to Jesus. I don't know if you can remember all the way back to when we were in chapter one of this gospel and we were talking about John the Baptist, but there was a message where I summarized what John the Baptist's ministry was like over and over and over again. And the phrase that I kept saying is, John was not the point, he was a pointer. All he did was talk about Jesus. All he wanted to do was magnify Jesus. Not himself, he did no signs. 
He did nothing to promote himself or promote his own glory. That wasn't his desire. His desire was to promote Christ. He said that himself most explicitly in John chapter 3 and verse 30. These are his words. He, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. John's heart was humble. It wasn't filled with pride. The prideful heart is blind to the person of Christ. But the humble heart beholds the person of Christ. And you remember what happened the first time that John saw Jesus? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now, in our text... The people who listened to John, spent time with John, heard John, they say everything John ever said about this man was true. John's heart was humble, and he led these people to have humble hearts. Hearts ready to behold and receive and rejoice in Jesus. Feel the implication. Press down the implications of this on your own life. When you encounter the claims of Christ, is your heart humbled? Or is it filled with pride? Do you pridefully automatically reject Jesus because of what you know? Or do you humbly consider his claims? Wrestle with with what this book says that he, he did. Have you thought through his works and and how they back up his his word? Are you willing to humble yourself and honestly hear the claims of Christ? And for those of us who are Christians who would say, yeah, when you hear the claims of Christ, we believe that that's who he is. For those of us who are Christians, we can press this even a little bit further. Because Jesus said to these people that if they'll humble themselves, if they'll consider his works, what it will lead to is it will lead to them coming to know and understand. Those are the same word in Greek. They're just in different forms. It means they will come to a knowledge and then they will continue in it, grow in it for the rest of their lives. That's where we are if you're a Christian. You'll keep encountering more and more of the claims that Christ makes about himself and that he makes on you. And so when we as Christians, when when we encounter the, the claims Christ makes on us, the commands he gives us, the commission he gives us, is our heart humbled or filled with pride? When when we read this word, when you read this word, and you encounter things that you don't understand, things that don't make Makes sense. Do we reject them because we do not possibly see how we could rejoice in them? Things like the wrath of God. I don't like that. I'm just going to reject that. Get rid of it. Because I, I don't possibly see how I, could, how I could rejoice in it, how it could be for God's glory or his is good. Or when I read of Jesus being the only way to God. Or when I, when I read about what Jesus says concerning current cultural issues like sexuality and marriage and singleness. I don't like what Jesus says about singleness. I don't like that he says that it could possibly be a good thing and a gift. Grains against what I know. 
If we want to get real personal, let me share with you the stuff that I struggle with that Jesus says and talks about. I struggle with everything that this book says about suffering. Because, because not only have I experienced suffering in my own life, as we all have, but because my particular vocation never allows me to step outside of the lives of people who are suffering. Like, I'm just in it. I'm not complaining. I love to walk with people through high times and through hard times. And I get to be there also for amazing, wonderful, incredible things. I love what I get to do. I'm not complaining about it. But what I'm saying is that I'm constantly exposed to people who are walking through deep grief and deep pain and deep suffering. And it gets really hard when I see all of that and, and it, it, it comes up against the grain of what this book says and what Jesus says about suffering. Our very next text in this gospel, John chapter 11, Jesus is going to let people he loves suffer. And he's going to say he does it for his glory and because he loves them. How does that work? When, when we read about things in this word that go against the grain of what we think we know, do we reject it? Or do we humble ourselves? Consider what Christ is saying. Dive deep into his word. Wrestle it out with friends in the faith in the church. Wrestle over the text and over this truth until we see that it is for our good and it is for his glory. My assumption is that everything that is here is for my good and for the glory of God. And that if I don't see that, the problem isn't with the word, it's with me. The problem isn't with how Jesus thinks, but how I think. And that according to Romans 12 and verse 2, my mind needs to be transformed. It needs to be renewed. The way I think has got to be changed according to this, this word. Do we, do we wrestle out the truth until we rejoice in it? He's our shepherd, so he gets to lead. No matter where he takes us. No matter what difficult truths we encounter in his word and how they come to play and bear out in our lives. Do we wrestle with that until we rejoice? And do, we, do we pridefully reject these things? Or we do we dig into the why behind his words? Do we dig into the why behind his wrath? The why behind his commands about holy living? The why of our commission and the purpose of our lives? The why behind suffering? The why behind where he leads us? Do we humble ourselves under his word, wrestle with it until by his power we come to know and understand and rejoice in it. Shades. See the claims of Christ in John chapter 10. He says that he is our sovereign shepherd, God in the flesh, who calls, leads, commissions, and keeps us. May our hearts not pridefully reject, but be humbled and rejoice in the claims of Christ, knowing they're not just claims, they're reality, they're truth.
for our good and his glory. Amen.